Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, welcome, everybody. We got a fun episode today. Our returning guests are Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson of Ritholz Wealth Management and hosts of the Awesome Animal Spirits podcast. Today's episode, Michael and Ben give us a preview of the Future Proof Festival in September, which our team was at last year and will be attending once again. Then we talk about a bunch of investing topics, including what is the single best diversifier to the average portfolio today? Please enjoy this episode with Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson. Ben and maybe Batnick, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. What's up, Meb? I had the pleasure of getting to hang out with Batnick recently in Manhattan Beach. Batnick, what was your review? What did you think of our little beach town? You know, I saw I saw the Cambria headquarters on the way out. So that was shit. They're, Thanks they're for stopping stuck. in. So you're too busy having beers on the beach and taking naps. What would uh It's miraculous. It's almost like too spectacular. I don't know. Uh I don't know how you live there. I don't even know what I'm saying. It's it's magnificent. What I was saying is I don't know how you live there. Like, like, does that does that wear off? Or are you do you wake up every day and you're like, holy shit, I'm in paradise? I mean, that you got that's gotta wear off, right? A little I like bit. being at the beach. It hasn't yet, 15 years in. But you guys are coming back. We're excited to see everybody coming up here in September at Future Proof. I'm a little surprised, to be honest. I got invited back given uh, some of my antics last year with the airplane. But uh, tell us, give us an update. What's going on? Are you doing a B-42 this year or did we say uh, no more airplanes? I'll tell you what I actually tried to do. So listeners, it turns out those spring break airplanes where they have like you see like the giant Bud Light signs in like Panama City or something are not that expensive to rent. And so if you didn't attend Future Proof last year, that would be how a long, great. How long did you pay for like an hourly thing or what? We had a, we had a couple hours, but we did a couple of things. First of all, we had a Monday night football to watch the Broncos get pummeled. And then we uh, we did a surf lesson for it was like 50 financial advisors showed up and I had a quite a bit of regret as soon as I watched them all just run into the ocean. We had a couple young hot surf instructors, guys and girls that were like 20 teaching everyone how to surf. And all these financial advisors from like the Midwest that are like middle age that have never surfed. And it was like a pretty decent sized day at Huntington Beach. And I was the photographer for the first round. And I'm like, oh, man, nobody signed a waiver. I'm just going to assume the waiver was with the instructions at this point. And then you, there was a current. You just see everyone just get swept down the beach. But it ended up great. Everyone had a lot of fun. But the plane, we hired a plane to, to fly by. And it said Cambria shareholder yield or something. No, it was tail risk. Excuse me, it was tail risk. However, we were getting out of the water and we see the plane go by. And I said, the plane is supposed to be at, at lunch. And I start, I get out of the water, I shower, get dressed, and I have all these texts from Josh and Barry that are basically like, Meb, your plane is so loud, we can't hear the speakers talk because it's outdoors. And I said, well, the plane was supposed to be at lunch and over the ocean. And I'm like, I can't call the plane like these flying around. So, and he was supposed to fly the next day. And I said, if it had been any other conference, if this was Schwab, TD, I would have said, you know what? 
you just circle above head for like five hours now. Just like, don't like, don't even like, but this one I said, you know what, fine. I'm not going to fly it. People did get pretty creative. I think there'd be more creativity. There was surfboards they were handing out and skateboards at some of the different booths. I think people get even more. One of the places had a bar at it. So one of the companies that is coming asked if anybody has claimed the Miami Vice thing, which is the official drink of animal spirits. So I guess it's, it's unofficial. It's semi-official. And uh, I don't which know if it's going to pass muster. Miami Vice. It, ben, why don't you say Because you put me onto it. I started getting this when I would go on a Caribbean vacations. It's half pina colada, half strawberry daiquiri. It's also called the lava flow. It's perfect diversification for a poolside drink. That's, that is the 60-40 of Caribbean drinks. Wait, Ben, I don't... I'm interested to hear you say that you mix it together. Because I, I, it's layered. It's usually one on the bottom, one on the top. I don't mix, but I was thinking, are you supposed to mix? You mix? No, I don't, sir. They put it together. But yeah. So, wait, someone is picking up the Miami Vice tab for us? No, somebody might have like a, a machine serving Miami. Miami Vi, I believe is the plural. So yeah, we're excited about that. Virgil Wealth is coming out with an In-N-Out burger truck, truck burger, a food truck burger. We're super excited about that. And this is going to be coming out in the, in the August single digit dates. I don't know if it's the 6th or the 8th or whenever it's coming out. From there, you only have until August 15th to secure tickets. And if you're on the fence, let me entice you with a carrot, so to speak. Advisor Circle is putting on this thing called Breakthrough, which is which gives you an opportunity to have 15-minute one-on-one sessions with either a platform company or an asset manager or another RIA that you're thinking about talking to. There's no obligation to attend all eight meetings. You have to sign up for eight or at least see the, see the fine print. I might be talking on time, but see the fine print. But if you do sign up for Breakthrough, what you'll get is a $750 travel voucher in real money, not no tokens, real actual fiat dollars. And, which by the way, but dollars look good today. And you will also receive a free ticket. So if that sounds interesting to you, and I don't know why it wouldn't sound interesting, you could see Red Man and Meth Man hang out with your favorite podcasters. Meb's going to be there. We'd love to see you. Great time. That's my commercial. Yeah, listeners, there'll be a link in the show notes. Futureproof.advisorcircle.com. Meb, back to your California thing. Being a Midwest guy, I always think like, God, the, the cost of living in California is so nuts. And then you go out there for a few days, like Huntington Beach last year, and I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I see it. It's not so bad. The... um. So what we were going to do this year, which your producers are not too enthused about, was we were going to try to do a drone show. And drone show is sort of the opposite of the plane. The plane is like cheap. It's like Vanguard beta. Drone show is not. Drone show is like 100 bucks per drone. You need a couple hundred drones. And it's only lasts for like eight minutes. It's like so, one of those light shows. Have you ever seen a drone show? Google on YouTube drone show. And like particularly in like China. You don't have to do it right now, but you can do it later. But uh, it's pretty spectacular. But they only last like eight minutes. But if you've never seen one, they're super cool. And, you know, half the people probably think it's like aliens or something. But anyway, if I surprise them, we still do it. You got a sneak peek. But listeners, I think they're putting the kibosh on. Anyway. All right. So you got Method Man. This can be fun. Listeners will be there. Come say hi. It's a great time. Good people. No ties allowed. What do you guys want to talk about today? What should we get into? I got the first topic. I just was looking at this. I don't know what caused me to do this. Uh, someone sent me something like, remember the Bill Gross Elarian thing from PIMCO about the new normal? They put it out in like 2009. And I think they kind of nailed like the lower rates, lower economic growth. Because that's what we had in the 2010s. But it was also bond yields are low, prepare for really low returns across all financial markets. And I looked 
by decade, I have a spreadsheet I update once in a while, decade returns. And I think any financial blogger in the early to mid 2010s was saying, listen, valuations are really high. You should probably expect lower returns going forward. Hand up. Guilty. I'm sure all three of us wrote that piece. And internationally, you could say that was right. But in the US, the US stock market returned like almost 14% per year in the 2010s. And I just updated through the 2020s, through all the crazy ups and downs we've had, it's almost 12% per year. So it the thing that sounded like such a smart argument to make. And if you were a reasonable investor looking at historical averages in terms of valuations or pr- pretty much any metric you wanted, you would have said, yeah, you should definitely expect lower returns coming out of the GFC because of what's happening, what the Fed's doing and, and all this stuff. And it doesn't make any sense. And look what happened. We, had, we ended up having above average returns over the next two decades, decade and a half. Macro is impossible. Micro is not much easier, but macro is impossible. Nobody knows. And what you couldn't have figured out with the macro, and I think the calls were reasonable at the time, valuation calls were reasonable, but what they were saying was reasonable. And a lot of it, you know, on the economic side turned out to be true. What you couldn't have predicted was what Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon were going to do to carry the weight of the S&P 500. And the fact that we had those returns, not just because of multiple expansion, which I'm sure was a piece of it, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think like, I'm, again, I'm making this up, 80, 85% of the, the returns came from fundamentals actually delivering I don't know what earnings per share growth was over the decade, but it was not it was not bullshit mul- uh, multiple expansion the whole time. It was real. Couple comments. One is I love linking to Ben's pieces on the decade long stuff because there's times when if I if I tweet about a couple of topics, buybacks, cape ratio, you know, people will lose their mind. And I, I like to often link to, to Ben's and say, hey, it's not my data. Go go get mad at Ben. I'm just interpreting it. But a couple of things. One is, you know, if you look at the bottom in 2009, you guys know I love Cape Ratio. U.S. was was screaming cheap. I think it got as low as like at intramonth, like 12 and like 13 at the end of the month. Even at the end of like the, the decade, so 2010, it was reasonable, like sub 20. OK, or, you know, if, if you look at long term Cape, it's usually around 17, 18 low inflationary times. It's like 20 to 22. So totally reasonable. And we actually did a old post based on, I think, Ben's data, where we said, if you look at, you know, decades and sorted them, whether Cape ratio below 20, above 20, and the argument I was making was actually in how the returns, you know, were and and below 20, they were much higher above 20, they were much lower. But then you take it further out above 30, above 40, the course of the decade, and then take it globally, Above 40, you basically have never had a scenario where stock stock market returns were even average. They were always below average for global markets, which is about 5% real. But what's interesting was that for a long time, people took sort of the inverse of that argument and said, you know, stocks are allowed to be expensive because bonds yields are low which is a version of the sort of the Fed model. And, and that's actually never been true. And I actually updated this yesterday on Twitter where I, I did a the top quartile, maybe even decile, I can't remember. I look at top fractile, we'll call it, of stock market returns in history. And this is probably using Ben's data. And then the worst stock market returns in history and what were the characteristics. And you have all the economic characteristics, but usually it's it's the least technical way to say it is 
good times follow the bad and bad times follow the good. You know, it's it's not that complicated. Yeah, that was like the easiest tell is that we had a lost decade in the, the first decade. Because to your point, if you go from that, the I think the worst entry point ever for stocks, even worse than 29 was like end of 99, early 2000. And if you look at the end of, if you invested at the start of 2000 in the S&P, it is below average. It's like 6.8% annual returns, even with the great 2000s decade. So, and early part of this decade. So like mashing those two together from that high cape of all time in 99, 2000, you still get below average returns from that, even though they've been above average since the great financial crisis. I was hoping we were going to hit, I mean, hoping is the wrong word. I thought we might hit all-time highs on the CAPE ratio in this last little meme stock. We got to about 40. But what's interesting is Jim O'Shaughnessy had posted during the bottom of the GFC this sort of, I can't remember if it was a 10-year rolling compound of returns or 20 on the S&P. Producers can dig it up. We'll put it in the show notes. But he gave it as a reason to buy in uh, Q1 2009. But the funny thing is if you look at that chart and we posted it to Twitter, we'll put it in the show notes, and there's two variants. One is we did a 10-year rolling compound in returns, which, as you mentioned, is dealt well into the double digits, but then also the sharp ratio, meaning risk-adjusted returns, which is essentially net of the risk-free rate. And essentially, there's four peaks in history. There's the roaring 20s, the nifty 50s, the internet bubble, and then the COVID meme stock, whatever we want to call it. All four of those, it looks like four little mountaintops. And... And so far, three of the cases, you know, the returns on the other side were, were pretty subpar. So we'll see this new environment, five, six percent bond yields. I don't know. That looks attractive to a lot of people, except for Batnick, who apparently is, is shorting bonds. The rally, I think, has surprised a lot of people, myself included. Uh, and I'm I'm always excited. Like, I can't wait for the next year. I can't wait to see what stocks are. I can't, I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see. I really can't wait to see it. You have the 30 year breaking out like for real, which is good. Right. It's good in the sense that it's reflecting economic strength. I think for the most part, I would have to imagine that the overall asset allocation of investors in the aggregate is going to shift, even a marginal shift, even if it's, I'm making this up, even if the average investor is 63.37, whatever it is, even if you go from 63.37 down to, you know, 59.41 or whatever, like these dollar amounts should, should, you know, could potentially move where the market heads in the future. So I'm excited to see it. Well, Michael, you made the point on a blog post this week. You were saying the 60-40 was looking so awful before when rates were essentially at zero or 1% that the stock market had to be way higher in terms of returns to like get you to a decent 60-40 return. And now you you just did the simple napkin math of if you're starting from 5 or 6% bond yield, the stock market doesn't have to go up as much for you to get a decent return on 60-40. Yeah, I love it. So my, my, my main thing here is like, listen, if you tell me that stock returns are going to be lower because bond returns are going to be higher, I'll take that all day, every day. Right. And I know there's a million like, well, I mean, but it, it makes the bogeys more realistic, like getting 8% when your bonds yielding 2%, you can do the math that requires a heavy lift in the market. And guess what? It did it. The market did it for us. The Fed pushed people out on the risk curve and people that did that were actually rewarded because stocks did deliver. But now it's a different world. 80% BlackRock on the BlackRock earnings call, 80% of all fixed income is yielding over 4%. That's probably stale data. Now it's probably 85 or whatever. And that's a beautiful thing. And now if that means that stocks don't do 13% and they do 6, 7, 8, I'll sign up for that all day, every day and twice on Sunday. 
So why, why are you short in bonds then? Sounds like you want to be long bonds. Yeah, I was teasing. <laughs> well, the other thing about that is the behavioral aspects. We've talked on our podcast in recent months, there's all these Wall Street Journal studies showing that baby boomers over time have had a slow shift upward in allocations to stocks. And part of that is probably because we had 15 years of 0% short-term rates and they were they were forced there by the Fed. And part of it, I think, is because baby boomers have lived through a bunch of crashes and every time they've seen stocks come back. So I think that that drift higher made some sense in terms of their experience. So I'm I think a lot of it will depend on how high, how long T-bill rates stay high, call it above like four or 5%, if it will be a behavioral change. Because baby boomers, in terms of individuals, hold the vast majority of wealth. I think it's like 55% of the wealth in the US. So to Michael's point, if they make a small shift in their stock allocation to safer bonds, especially right as they're all retiring, it would it will be interesting if that will be a little bit of a headwind for the first time for stocks in terms of allocation. So you guys seeing that across any of your clients? All these are these boomers requesting it. Um, I got, imagine you guys have a slightly younger cohort than most. But is the cinnamon indicators firing on bonds for you guys? Or are there people more should? Our sixty forty was seventy thirty. Like that's just what it was for for, much, for most of the last decade. Now advisors are able to downshift, and again, I think it's I think it's great. It makes the financial plans a lot healthier. It makes the volatility lower. I've had a couple of conversations in recent months of people saying, I went to 70, 30, or even 80, 20, because I wanted those higher expected returns, because I, I think I'm going to live longer. And now, okay, I'm ready to downshift back to like a 60, 40, because I think that makes more sense where I am. So those conversations are being had. All over the country. Meb, we spoke about um, the behavioral aspect of it. And if you can't comment on this or don't want to, we could punt to something else. But Ben and I just had Bruce Bond from Innovator ETFs on the show. That was a bit of a, a third rail topic on Twitter. The their ETFs that offer zero percent downside with a capped upside. So I love the idea from a behavioral point of view that you can put this in front of a client or an individual can put this in front of themselves and say, like, because the markets are all about trade-offs, right? I want less risk. I want more risk. I, I'm willing to accept higher volatility. No, I can't stomach that. I, I I know myself and I don't want to do that, be in that position. So there's tra- there's trade-offs between risk and reward, but the trade-offs are a mile wide because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You just sort of have like a range of outcomes, right? With something like this, where you can very specifically define the outcome on your own terms, and maybe this isn't attractive to you, but when you when you could say, okay, over a two-year period or whatever it is, I know that I will get my money back at the end of this period. However, I'm capped out at wherever the cap is, 14, 15, 16, whatever it is. And so if the market is up 30%, I'm cool with 16. Like to be able to define your outcome for wherever your risk tolerance is, I think behaviorally, that's a wonderful thing, even if it means you leave returns on the table. Yeah, a couple comments. One is there's a lot of products out there that if you're looking for what we'd call product market fit, you know, is a, a big VC term, thinking about a service or a product in VC land, that's the magical product market fit. Well, I think there's a lot of products that they're not actually seeking a product end investor fit, they're seeking a product advisor fit. And I would lump annuities into this category decades long product, a lot of the products that old school brokers would get paid a lot to sell, right? Is it good for the client? I don't know, maybe, um, but it but it fits all the boxes for the advisor. You know, these type of structures, 
and again, annuities are similar to me, I think can be fantastic. I think coming up with more certainty, investors hate uncertainty, this concept I think is wonderful. The question is, does the investor really want it? You know, or is it something the advisor wants? And is it something that they understand? And then of course, the big one is always, how much are you paying for it? So how much are you paying for it in expenses, right? Traditional, the problem with annuities, the reason Ken hates them is usually because they're super expensive and there's a hundred layers of fees, much like the traditional mutual fund industry. But then second is, which I think you were more alluding to is, what is the actual cost of the hedge? The problem with a lot of the hedges that you pay for the insurance is when you hedge away all the market risk, guess what? You just turned into T-bills, right? And that's kind of where you end up. And so I think if you can design it thoughtfully, the investors on board and it's low cost, God bless them. They've certainly been popular. The, the challenge I think historically has been complexity, the costs, so to me, this strip this strips a lot of that away because you mentioned annuities. The prospectus is 190 pages. They're so non-transparent. They are so expensive. You don't know what you're paying for. And with these sort of products, whether it's Innovator or whoever, I think the, the category is going to continue to expand because investors hate uncertainty. They just do. And nobody's saying, at least I don't think anybody's saying that this should be all of your portfolio. Like only an idiot would say that you should have all your money in annuities. But I think that they're... I think that people are willing to overpay for certainty, not on the expense ratio, in terms of for in terms of opportunity costs. If you, if you miss a rip or bull market, oh, the market's up thirty percent, and I only up I'm only up fifteen. Cool. The rest of my portfolio is in stocks or part of it. I'm I'm good. Meb, you make another good point on the gatekeeper aspect of financial advisors, though the fact that that they are the bouncers now in a way that brokers probably were in the past, and advisors have probably never been more powerful. Michael and I talked to fintech firms all the time who like it'll be a technology like they, they have a they have an idea but they come from the technology world and they'll come to us and they'll say listen the advisor tam is enormous can you guys teach me how the ria world works and in our thought process is that's never going to work if you want to really make it into this business you have to have an idea from the have to have someone on your team from the advisor side but advisors have so much control these days and and they are that gatekeeper that I think it's almost underestimated from certain people who are outside of the industry how much power and money that advisors control these days. Yeah, you know, we we did a thread on Twitter the other day where one of my trigger tweets of the past year was, I hear a lot of people describe how they invest. They say, oh, you know, I just put all my money in the S&P. It's boring. You know, it's index. It's boring. And to me, that's a very strange phrase because I say there's a lot of things you could describe indexing is cost efficient, great exposure to the stock market, low fee, on and on and on, tax efficient. But putting all your money in US stocks to me is is not fit as the category is, is extremely risky to me. And so when we look at some of these strategies, my always takeaway is like once you have a diversified portfolio, I obviously I my take on diversified is a lot different than most. The question is how much do you need these sort of other bells and whistles, right? Like if you have a beautifully globally diversified stocks, bonds, real assets, hey, throw in some value and trend following, do you actually need some of these products? You know, I don't know. We had asked a question on Twitter where we said, the successful entrepreneur who's actually a podcast host sold his business and he basically did the Buffett portfolio. You know, it was like 80% in 
SPY and the remainder in T-bills. And I said, if you could add one thing, what would it be to this portfolio? You're allowed to make one change. Do you guys have an answer to this? Because like to me, this is something that's like, it's attacking that problem where this entrepreneur spent all his life, made 10, 20, 50 million bucks, whatever it is. And then it's it's like buying a TV. It's like, ah, I'll just, you know, I'm going to buy it SPY and be done with it. And, you know, theoretically could go down 50, 80%. But to me, that's not boring and it's super concentrated. What would you guys say to that, uh, that, that entrepreneur? What would you add first? You can only add one thing, by the way. Can I just say one thing, just, just to finish, close the loop on the, on the behavioral stuff that we just spoke yeah. about. If you are able, and if you, have, if you have demonstrated to yourself the ability to sit through drawdowns, then you do not need products like that, kudos to you. But a lot of people have cross their own line one too many times and are self-aware enough to know that I can't sit through a 40% drawdown because of the last time I freaked out. So if you don't need this, God bless. And I'm not saying everyone does. This is certainly not the case. But only for those people that know that they can't stomach all of the equity risk. I wonder how many of those people only have one side of the behavioral barbell, meaning there's the people that freak out when they have the drawdowns, but there's the people that also get sucked into the jealousy of an envy of things ripping. And if you have a product like this, where you're like, well, the market's up 30 this year and my, you know, hedged innovator fund is only up five because I'm capping the upside. What the hell? Yeah, if you bail, it's useless then. That's a great point. I tend to have more, I tend to err on the side of like FOMO. I don't get scared of drawdowns, at least in like my real long-term money. Like if I'm picking stocks, I won't take a deep drawdown because I don't trade stocks that way. But I don't care my 401k. That can go down 60% and I wouldn't blink. Not that I wanted to, obviously. Bab, to your other question, we get that same thing all the time where why do I need to hold anything beyond US stocks? And as someone who's like studied market history, I think if you held just US stocks and your time horizon is 20, 30, 40 years, you'll probably end up fine in the end. I think that the problem is if you do run into those 10-year periods like 2000, 2009, where you have a lost decade, it's funny, it wasn't that long ago. People were like, US stocks are the worst place to be now. And it's and it's flipped because of the last 15 years and they've US stocks, especially large caps, have been kind of the only game in town on a relative basis that people are, well, I can get 40% of the sales outside of the US and why do I need to invest internationally? And and every time I show a long-term chart of the US stocks saying over the last hundred years, this is how it's done, someone will give me the now show Japan. And I now show Japan is the perfect reason to not have all your eggs in one basket for the US because you just don't want to have the worst possible thing happen at the worst possible time when you need the money. That's my whole thing about diversifying beyond the US. It's funny to me. I think my attitude has shifted. For someone who's like a sold a business and has a lot of money, I actually think that like real estate probably has better behavioral benefits than than most other asset classes. Even though I don't have a good strategy for that space, I think the the fact that it's illiquid and it ties up your money and makes you stay there and has tax benefits I think for ultra wealthy people, it's actually probably not a bad idea. I had a, a, a wealthy person that was like eight years old a couple months ago telling me about how his favorite asset class is a house on the water. He, he goes, a house on the water will literally never go down in value. And he was being tongue in cheek, but I think he was kind of halfway serious. And I think if you had a good strategy in real estate, I think that's a pretty good diversifier from like an inflation hedge and the perspective of it like forcing you to hold for the long term. Yeah. Just to echo both of your points. Yeah, if you go through a lost decade, so if you had 100 investors say to you, all I own these is S&P 500 and that's all I will ever loan, which by the way, let's be real, who says that? I mean, yeah, I'm sure they're out there. But 
I think that if there were 100 people that said that, maybe seven or eight could hold for 30 years. It's just, it's so, it is so boring most of the time. You will have lost decades. And, and not only during the lost decade will you hold a, something that goes not even sideways for 10 years, you get zero return with, and you have to eat a ton of risk and a ton of anxiety, right? There's crashes in that flat 10-year period. But worse than that, you had other parts of the world doing really well. So to think that you wouldn't be looking over your shoulder at emerging market value and small value, or whatever, and REITs that did well, you're fooling yourself. Of course, you're going to bail. Oh, just of course you are. We're all human beings. So getting back to the the, the person who sold their business, what what's the exact question? What, what you get to add one thing to that portfolio, and it could be nothing. You say, no, you're perfectly fine. 80% S&P, 20% T-bills. But you, you essentially have 100% of your net worth. You took it out of this company, your life's work boom and you don't currently have a job like you may do something again but so first i'll say that if you were 80 20 global stocks tables you'll be just fine but let's actually answer your question maybe i'm placating the the host here although i do i do believe this let's talk about trend following so i am i'd be curious to hear your thoughts so we we were heavily influenced by your white paper and employ trend following models in our in our business in similar ways to the ones that you laid out what I'd be curious to hear from you is how your thoughts have evolved on trend following with, with the lens that markets move a lot quicker these days. And so maybe the answer to quicker markets is actually doing less, right? Not being whipsawed, even though you can't eliminate whipsaws. So how have you thought about the, the speed at which markets change these days through the lens of trend following? Yeah. So listeners, my answer to this, and we got a lot of wonderful ones, and I was actually surprised to see a lot of the trend responses. But again, you, I think you're, you're correct in that my audience is biased. But when I do do the polls, it's consistently everyone puts all their money in U.S. stocks. That's about it, right? So you have some other stuff on the fringe, but really it's a U.S. stock game. My second answer was Ben's answer, which was real assets, but that could also include tips. I think it could include global REITs. It could include commodities or farmland, but it's the same general thing. And lastly, it would have been global value equities. So trend, you know, I think the answer to this is actually probably gone in reverse, meaning, you know, I don't think people over the years got thousands of questions like, have you thought about this parameter? Have you thought about this, that, and the other? I actually saw, it's humorous, I found an old post that Barry did. I mean, this has got to be 10, 15 years ago, where he was talking about like a certain econometric model about trend following. I'll send it to you guys. It's pretty funny. And to me, the simplicity of it is the parameter doesn't really matter. So whether you use something like a 10-month moving average, which is what we published, we published a follow-on paper, which no one has read, called is investing at all-time highs a good idea? No, it's a great idea. And that one, instead of looking at moving average, looks at breakout. So we use the longest metric possible, which was all-time highs in history. So you only invested if a market was at an all-time high, and then you sold it when it went down. I can't remember. It was like 5 10%. Okay, so some sort of... And it turns out it, it does fantastic. Like it's the dumbest trading system in history, and it does wonderful it does much better if you do like a 12-month look back, which was published, was the Nicholas Darvis book 80 years ago at this point. He talked about these sort of range breakouts. So I don't think it really matters. What does matter to me, I think there's two parts to this. One is if you were asking, hey, what is the best risk-adjusted way to do a portfolio on its own? 
And I think doing a, a long flat, meaning you're in the asset and you sell and move to T-bills or 10-year is the best way. But if you're saying, what can I add to a traditional long only portfolio to make it better? And to me that you probably want some form of long short. And the reason being is that if you're just doing the, the long flat, you're really just adding the long component. The short component is what really helps balance out. So a year like last year, why do managed futures and trend have such a great year? It's because they are all short bonds, you know? And so a flat one would not have had that sort of return, right? It would have done fine and much better than buy and hold. We get so many questions on my DMs where people are like, hey, man, there's these managed futures funds, which, I, you know, I was looking at. CTA versus CAM LM and DBMF and blah, blah, blah. Which one do you like better? This one does that. I'm said, and this is the least satisfying answer. I said, why don't you just buy them all? Which, you know, is not what I really mean, but I'm saying, you know, people, I was like, I want the beta of trend following, not really this quote alpha. And it's hard to be independent here and non-biased, but I think trend following to me, if you blind out all the asset classes and strategies, this is an asset class strategy. To me, it's the best one you can add to a traditional diversified portfolio, but it's not for everyone. And it goes through a lot of periods of suck. And by the way, Ben, I was going to mention, we just finished. It was like the worst period of global buy and hold returns ever versus the S&P. As far as years in a row at underperform, it was like 12 or something in magnitude. It was massive where the S&P just massacred everything on a globally diversified portfolio. And it doesn't matter which one, whether it's endowment style, risk parity, whatever, S&P was the place to be, so. Being different is hard. And when we say different, we're US, we're, we're, we're US citizens, right? So different than the S&P 500, that's what we're judged against for better and for worse. And so in a year like 2022, like our trend following strategy got, got shot to hell and it reduced volatility dramatically because there was a couple of really nasty months that we were out, but then we got whipsawed and gave it all back. And so it was challenging. And then the thing that I love about trend following is that it removes the emotion because my my instincts for getting in and out are almost always wrong. And when we got back in earlier in the year, I was like, oh no, oh no, it's going to happen again. We both said, we we felt like, the, no one felt like it was a good time to get back in when the rules were saying to, and no one could have predicted like, oh, the market's going to take off eventually after you got back in because you did get chopped up so many times. And that's why you have to, follow it, come hell or high water, basically, it's not going to work. It's easy to get out. So getting out of the market is the easiest, it's the most natural thing in the world when you get scared. Getting back in for a million reasons is super difficult. Meb, one of the things that we looked at, and I agree with your statement. So when we when we did all of our research on trend following, was primarily, we did globally, but we really honed it on US stocks. And we did a lot of economic overlays. You mentioned Barry's thing. And just, yeah, it could probably maybe easier to convince a naive investor to give you their money right? If you've got all these bells and whistles, but we threw everything out and Josh said, come on, come on. You, like if this works, why isn't everyone doing it? And my answer was, cause it's not bullshitty enough. It's hard to sell because it's so simple and it's elegant in that way. One of the things that we looked at very deeply was like, what about, what about selling or trimming in an extended market? Whether you're looking at one, two, three standard deviations above a 50 day, 200, whatever, we couldn't find anything and we tried. So there's nothing to say like, oh, well, in 2021 or 2020, you should have known that the trend was going to reverse. Oh, yeah? How? Go through the data and find anything in there that not once or twice, because yeah, once or twice it worked, 
that more than 50-50 is going to add to your portfolio, minus all the costs and all the bullshit and all that sort of stuff. I think if you um, listen to a lot of the old school trend followers, the Jerry Parkers of the world who've been doing this for like 50 years, and I always love my friends on Twitter when they're talking about, well, trend following doesn't have much of a track record. And there's all these CTAs that have been around for 50 years. Done is probably my favorite that just have had these phenomenal track records and have sustained for decades. But to me, I think some of the portfolio management decisions, you know, to me are more important than the individual trading rules. And part of that is what markets do you trade, you know, and you never know where the trends are going to come from because sometimes you look back and it's wheat or the Euro dollar or last year being a weird one, short bonds. But there's really no other way to have hedged short bonds in your portfolio. People try to get long commodities or inflation type of assets, but that doesn't always work. I don't think people could stick with long short portfolios. Uh, like even professional investors who really know what it's doing, it's just, it's too different. You get twice as many chances to be wrong. Yeah, it's just too much for the, forget about the average investor. I think even really people that get it, like I think they just end up throwing in the towel, probably probably usually at the wrong time. I just think it's really tricky. The blow up risk is higher. It took me a while to convert to the idea of trend following and Matt Beer paper helped and people like Wes and AQR. But I think the, the great thing about it is it's I think it's the one true strategy that you can actually believe all of the back tests because price is the one key. Because if you look at Michael and I looked at other stuff and I, I knew a guy who had an earnings model and he used it as a market timing thing. And the back test was great. It was some sort of thing like earnings rolling over like a, and the, the back test looked beautiful and it worked great until 2008 and 2007 and 2009 when the bank earnings essentially went like negative. And it completely threw up through his model out the window and totally messed with his timing rules. And I think anything economically like that, that the environments or the regimes could change so much to effectively reduce your back test to, to being meaningless. Price is like the one thing that you can say it's always tied to human emotions. And no matter the environment, it's the one thing that you can say is like the constant is price. And that that man, it, that price tells you everything. All that other stuff is baked into price, regardless of the environment. Yeah. Any of the multi-factor models we've ever done, usually price is the key lever as far as for trend. Batnik, you're talking about like like trying to add all these other things. I mean, we've done some where we look at the US stock market. We talk a lot about this on the cheap, expensive, up and down trend. It's still the majority muscle movement from our buddy Wes, quote, you know, is is the trend part. Now, it helps to add some of the valuation stuff. And then you can add on like interest rates. And so then it becomes this full econometric. But really, to me, at the end of the day, you want trend to be the final arbiter because you have times like last fall or whenever and you see, wait a minute, why are my momentum and trend models getting back in? I don't want to buy these things. Oh, I'm so bearish. I feel like everything, you know, is going uh, down the toilet. But one of the reasons I think on the behavioral side, most investors will never and professional actually implement a trend following portfolio they need to allocate it through a fund, right? Like they need to buy a basket of funds, hopefully quantitative, that do it. And that to me is slightly more palatable. It's not totally palatable, but it's it's slightly better than trying to do it on your own. Now, the one thing I do tell all my equity friends, and none of them like to hear this or agree with it, is I say, look, what do you own for your stock exposure? And they say, well, it's market cap weighted index. I said, that's the ultimate trend following algorithm. It literally is price-based only. And it's always fun to actually ask people, what do you think market cap is based on? And you say, it's literally 
the algorithm is you buy and you hold it. And the more it goes up, the more you own. And the more it goes down, the less you own. And eventually you get stopped out at zero or whenever the index kicks it out. That's it. Like that's market cap weighting. That's one of the reasons it works. And the beauty of market cap weighting. Now, it's key flaws. It has no tether to fundamentals. Topic for another day. But market cap weighting is trend following at its essence, which is hard for people to hear. I think one of the one of the themes of this conversation is it's hard, right? We're saying holding the S&P is hard, adding this behavioral thing is hard. Yeah, it's all hard. Nothing, making money in the market, whatever you're doing, none of it is easy. Well, it's also funny because back to your market capitalization piece, like all the factor stuff you read about, especially in like the early to mid 2000s was like market cap is one of the worst factors you can have. And then it goes at like beta is one of the factors, right? The, the original Fama French three-factor model, right? Beta was one of them. And it turned out to be the best performing thing of the past 15 years. And it's funny, you talk about like getting tempted to do something else. People who held the S&P were fine, but then the temptation then was to look at the NASDAQ 100 and go, wait, that's the real benchmark index now, because look at how much better that is doing than the S&P. I should have been in that. And that the concentration risk there is even more, even though that that has just been lights out, you know, because of technology doing so well. So even if you're in what seems like the best asset class is like the S&P 500 or total stock market index beta, you always think you can do better because there's always going to be some sector or subset that is beating it. I heard Kathy say within the last year at some point that ARK is the new NASDAQ as far as the benchmark. So it went from S&P to Q's to ARK about that everything is hard. There's a great stat, which sounds like a shitpost, but it's true, which was uh, Chris Bloomstrand had a quote. And I had to go test this because I didn't believe it. He's like, Berkshire Hathaway since inception can decline 99% and still be outperforming the S&P. And I was like, there's no way that's true. Really? I've never heard that one. And so I, I went and tested it and sure enough, it's true. And then he mentioned it to Warren and Warren's like, Ben Graham would be proud but let's not try, let's not try the math. Um, and so I was, and I was wow. thinking about this as Batnick was talking about, he's like, look, my 401k could go down 60% and it's not gonna be a problem for me. I was like, all right, well, let's not try the math. Cause like, it's a, that's a hard thing to try to experience or to go through. Right. I shall say I'm 38 years old. If I was 50, I would not be saying that. Yeah. Well, the youngins, man, they haven't been through a big fat one yet. All these little dips. We'll see how they do. What else you guys got? What do you think about what Sean Payton said? Does that fire you up as a Broncos fan? Or you're like, why are you, why are you doing that? I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree with him. You know, I mean, I, I think they lost probably three to four games last year, like solely due to coaching blunders. Like they, by the end of the year, they had to hire someone literally just to manage the clock. Like they couldn't get plays in. Like watching it, you had everyone watching the game being like, well, why are you not calling a timeout? I mean, it's very, ba- like, you know, very, very basic stuff. So it seems quite reasonable to me. Now, there's sort of the, everyone's getting whiny about there's a coach's code. And you're not supposed to say these things. But like, if everyone knows it to be true, I don't know that it's that crazy of a statement to make. Oh, I'll, th- I'll throw out one last topic for you as we wind down, uh, Meb. Dividends. We, let's do dividends real quick. I saw a great tweet the other day from, actually, I spoke about it last night on What Are Your Thoughts with Josh. There's a Global X Dividend ETF. Is it DIV? Yeah, yeah, Global X Super Dividend. That's gone, the total returns for the last decade are you know really bad, 35% or whatever. Even the Russell 1000 value was up like 140%. 
so I think we mostly agree. I think that if you are investing in dividends solely on the yield and the higher the yield, the better, the more excited you get. Horrible, horrible, horrible strategy. But I think, getting back to the behavioral piece, if people own an individual stock portfolio of Coca-Cola, Verizon, bad example, Pepsi, whatever, not these super high-yielding dividends, but these these dividend-oriented stocks because it it behaviorally they know that come hell or high water Coca-Cola is paying them their dividend. This so this gets back to the whole you know a, a reasonable strategy is better than the perfect one that you can't stick to. So I think there's a lot of behavioral benefits to a value of a dividend-based strategy like that. I know you have a lot of thoughts on dividends. Yeah, I mean, how are you squeezing this in in the last three minutes of the show? I see you're also trying to get me to do a Sean Payton on Global X. Like, come on, man, you're gonna get me to shit talk this. Here's a need to t- we're taking it one step further. I think. The leap a lot of people made from dividends in the 0% rate world were then call options. I don't know how much work you've done quantitative and call options, but I think that's even people look at call options and say, I'm getting like a 14% dividend yield, which is, of course, not the same thing. But I think people thought call options were even like a better form of dividends. Yeah, they, they like to claim it's income, which is a bit weird. You got a lot wrapped in here, guys. The first comment was, you know, thinking about you'll do fine investing in Coke. I mean, that reminds me of the Buffett late 90s. I mean, Coke was kind of the NVIDIA of that time. Not NVIDIA, maybe it's like Apple, right? Where it's a great company, but pretty darn expensive. And sure enough, Coke went nowhere for, what is this, like 12, 14 years or something, right? So that's a lifetime. I mean, that's longer than the S&P has creamed everything this cycle. So it can be, we were debating this on the podcast the other day where I was talking to uh, somebody, I said, look, do you think, well, it was Pabrai, Monish, I said, you know, do you think Buffett should be selling Apple here? It's got a lot of vibes similar to Coke late 90s, like it's getting up there, a couple trill. But look, you guys know my shtick. I mean, I think it's crazy to look at dividends in isolation. I think they have an amazing brand. You know, if you're going to do dividends, there's two massive things you have to incorporate. So God bless you do dividends. That's that's I'm fine with that. But there's two things you have to incorporate. And if you don't, you're going to end up at that minus 30% return. The first one being you have to incorporate buybacks. You can do a dividend strategy, but it needs to incorporate buybacks, not just because of the buybacks, but also because of the share issuance. And look at the tech sector the last five years, Snapchat, which is basically just a vehicle to transfer wealth to the executives. I mean, the amount of stock-based compensation is insane. If you own that stock- We just talked about that one. It's cr- it's a crazy amount of money. I think it's $8 billion since it came public was given to- Insiders. So buybacks is one, but but people focus on the buyback part, but it's equally, if not more important to focus on the share issuance. Average company in the stock market is an issuer of shares. But the second is valuation, right? And this is basic Ben Graham stuff. Like, hey, I bought a four or 8% yield or hurrah. Well, you probably just bought a really junky company. And then sometimes you're also buying a company that's really expensive, which is crazy. Like, why would you ever buy a stock that's a high yield or that's expensive, but also a buyback company, a company buying back stock that's expensive. That's nuts. And so the dividend only focus, people love this concept, much like the selling calls, which makes no sense of, hey, passive income, the fire movement, writing checks, sitting on the beach, drinking lava flows. What did you call them? Miami Vice. Miami Vice. Miami Vice. Drinking Miami Vice, baby. I'm just getting this passive income. Great brand doesn't work out in the long run, in my opinion. There's ways to do it where it's fine. But if you ignore price valuation, if you ignore 
shareholder governance, meaning the, the buybacks issuance, I think it's a recipe for failure. Gentlemen, uh, any last thoughts on Future Proof? What are you most excited about? M-E-T-H-O-D, man. Go and do uh, CrossFit workouts with uh, well, Justin Crew at 6 a.m. <laughs> ben might. I'm bringing my dad bot. I, I, I just, I gained five pounds in the last uh, couple of days. I'm not happy about it, but. How, gotta, how do you gain five pounds in the last couple of days? What, is, what does that even mean? What'd you do? <laughs> Don't ask. There are ways. You there doing ways. a Chipotle sit-in? There are ways. Uh, I'm excited to see you, Mev, and everybody else. So thank you for having us. We can't wait to see you. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us today. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.